You know when you read a sentence that leaps off a page and you know almost for certain exactly who wrote it? That's because of a writer's voice, and we're going to talk about it. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, a podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. This is Kristen Donnelly, and I'm here with Andrea Nguyen, Molly Stevens, and Kate Leahy. Before we get into it, I'd love to know from all of you, what writer or book did you first read that made you think, I want to do this work? I want to be a food writer. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I, re- I read a bunch of cookbooks. And so I was influenced by Irene Kuo, who wrote The Keys of Chinese Cooking, and also James Beard's American Cookery, and Julia Child's Works the Way to Cook. Some good ones. I was thinking about this. I knew you were going to ask this, Kristen. And <laughs> I, it's really hard because I did not grow up with cookbooks. I was realizing this mm-hmm. as we talk about it. My mom cooked, but there weren't cookbooks. They had community, some community cookbooks. She had notebooks. Recipes were things that were traded among friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was in my late 30s, mid to late 30s, before I even considered writing a recipe or writing about food. And at that point, I was... I'd already given up the prospects of becoming a professional chef, which is what I first wanted to do. And I was um, deeply enmeshed in culinary education. I was a chef instructor at a culinary school. So I think that I would have to answer most honestly, it were reference books like Harold McGee was huge. And in, in I, mm. I, I taught food theory, a course on food theory, food science. And so reference books like LaRousse and like I said, Harold McGee. And then um, certainly I did work for Ann Willen for a number of years and her Lover and Practique. Those would be the books, these like super dense, almost academic researchy books. Yeah. How about you, Kate? Well, I was going to say, I do have that Harold McGee on food and cooking book still on my shelf. It's faded, but I have all these sticky notes in it on these pages that I kept referencing. I love that book. I still go back to it anytime I'm looking up something. It's so great. But, you know, that's a really good question because I think growing up, I had some of those. I think it might have been Marion Cunningham's Fanny Farmer book in the house. Uh, My mom had some Palo Alto Junior League books. I remember looking, I went straight for the pastry, any kind of dessert cookbook because my mom did not bake very much. She bakes all the time now. But when I was a kid, she had too many other things to do. So if I wanted treats or sweets or anything, I had to figure out how to make it. And I always thought the people who could make pie to me, that just seems so magical. I was like, how do you do that? Because my mom would think, well, why make a pie? Just make a crisp. It's so much easier. But I was like, but the magic of pie crust. So I would kind of go into that. And I think I looked at uh, Jim Dodge's, I think, An American Baker that came out in the 90s. That was um, my go-to for pie crust for a long time. But I think for me, writing about food, I didn't really think of it until I read, I started reading a lot of food memoir, but I think that was because I was so interested in the the insider world of the secret lives of food people because I was just a, you know, normal kid. I, you know, at my soccer practices, I didn't know any chefs. They just seemed like they were in a different world. So I think reading books like uh, 
Ruth Reichel's first book, Tender at the Bone, I said, oh my gosh, there's other people in the world who think about food all the time like me. And so I think that was, and then I looked for more books like that. And I think that's when I started just trying to read as much as I could. So I wasn't, I wouldn't say there's like one book that stands out above the rest, but I just tried to read everything. Yeah. How about you, Kristen? What about you, Kristen? Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. So I... At my first job out of college, I was a, an administrative assistant at an engineering firm. Ah. It was just like, I need a job and I don't want to live at home. And this was the first job that came along. But I started getting into cooking and I read the Washington Post food section religiously because I lived in Washington, D.C. I would talk with the receptionist at the engineering firm. And unfortunately, I've forgotten her name, but I talked to her a lot about food and cooking. And she handed me one day Lori Colwyn's Home Cooking. Oh. And I read that book and was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is it. This is what I want to do. I I don't know if I made many of the recipes, but I just enjoyed her prose and like, I don't know, just the way she turned something very simple and basic into this, like something you might not even think about. I think that's where I started to realize like, oh, this could be a thing. And when I first started writing some essays, I remember I was like very clearly imitating her (laughs) and then slowly maybe found uh, my own way, but we'll get more into that. But yeah, Laurie of Cohen's home cooking. I mean, she sort of foresaw the the food blog world. I mean, this these were yeah. this was she wrote columns. Um, she they were compiled in her in her books. But her voice was very much kind of like I think what food writing became in the early two thousands um, on blogs. I was going to say the the older world of food blogs because now SEO SEO SEO. Well, it's interesting thinking about that book, and I did reread it recently. Um, and it's about as different as the books that I that drew me in. And I think that's mm. part of the magic and the beauty of the Lori Cullen book is that it's about everyday cooking. It's about, as the title suggests, home cooking and making something as ordinary as cooking a simple meal into something worth writing about and celebrating it. And, and there's a relatability in reading about that. Cause you're like, oh, that happened to me or that that's what it feels like when I'm home cooking eggs or whatever. So it's a, it's really interesting. And just having a strong opinion, like she sometimes would just have these, you know, an opinion about gingerbread and how like gingerbread should be and defending that position. And I, I really enjoyed that book. So let's talk a little bit about why we want to talk about voice. And it started with episode number two, I believe, interview with uh, Rika, right? Yeah. The famous three letter phrase. We've condensed it to call it IVP, but Rika Alanik, who is a literary agent, she very clearly said what she looks for from an author is a solid idea, a compelling voice, and some kind of platform. So in just a few words, how would each of you define voice from a writing point of view? Man, you know, I think of voice in terms of the strategies that an author uses to kind of create the illusion that you're speaking to the reader directly from the page. Yeah, mm, that's so cool. I love that, Andrea. Well, I kind of crib that from a, a writing book that I read often, so it's not super original, but it, it works, right? Yeah, I mean, not just the, works, it's like perfect right. in terms of describing you know, this thing that we do, because it is like an illusion, because, you know, what we say in the page, how we write isn't necessarily how we speak, right? And how we present ourselves in our in our day to day lives, but we're trying to convey and persuade, and sometimes dissuade people from doing things. And so it is like, you know, a, a certain communication strategy. Absolutely. And it's creative. And it's, 
challenging. It's also fun. You know, it goes yeah. back to what you said in the very beginning of the episode, when you read a, a line and you almost know for certain who wrote it, that's mm-hmm. because the strength of the voice and it's a personality. It's something that's unique, a unique point of view, right. a unique rhythm, a unique way of speaking, mm-hmm. although it's writing. Right, right. Quick question. What's the name of the book, Andrea? Oh, it's called Writing Tools by Roy Peter Clark. I look to books like this one that's very global Mm because I think that food writing has a lot of applications elsewhere. So um, his book is very, very good. Throws a lot of things out there like use active verbs. But then passive ones can be very helpful. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Right. I do feel like writing and cooking are so much you know, it's like, always do this, except when. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whenever there's a rule, there's got to be an exception. Yes. yes. You got to know the rules before you can break them. Right. Oh, exactly. I think voice could also be, you know, to use today's parlance, your brand. I mean, it's it's totally it's how you present yourself. Andrea, what you're saying is so important about it, because I certainly know for myself and I'm guessing for most writers, I know the first lines you put down, the messy first draft, that is not necessarily going to be in your your voice. It's what you do. It's the decisions you make when you read the line that you wrote and say, "Mm, there's a better word here, or maybe I'll move these words around. That's where your voice comes out. So it's the edited, the curated version of your first drafts. It's strategic communication is what it is. And that sounds so, you know, marketing, blah, 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 but it is. And mm-hmm. the thing with food writing is that we are often, unless you're writing on lo- for online, we're often hampered by space. And so you really have this very limited amount of space and word count to communicate something. That's challenging. And so that voice, is your voice is hamstrung, you know, it's like got all these things pushing on it. And then, you know, there's the tone part of it too. Right. Striking that tone and voice and balancing that out. My God. What's the difference between tone and voice? Because I think it's really easy to sort of flip-flop those. And sometimes I have to kind of think, okay, is this a tone thing? Is this a voice? I mean, I think of voice as sort of how that that's me. That's in, inherent to me. But tone can change. If I'm writing for a publication that has a specific tone, my voice is going to have to change to follow that publication. And if I'm writing a very serious book, my tone is going to have to have a serious tone. If I'm writing a very fun and sort of light book, then it's going to have a different tone. Is that is that what you all see as voice versus tone because I, I'm happy to be corrected. Yeah, that's how I think of it. It's like social media post versus a blog post versus an email. Those might have tone differences depending on what you're communicating or maybe even who you're talking to. It's like I talk to my child a little differently than I talk to my best friend, but it's still all me. I think you could even change your tone. I think of tone as a mood almost. Mm-hmm. You know, you're happy about something or sad or angry about something. And I think even within, say, in a book, since we were speaking mostly about books, is Hopefully the entire book is written in whatever voice, whatever strategic communication you have chosen or developed and crafted, but your tone might change throughout. Like if there's a section about the history of a certain ingredient and maybe it's a complicated history, your tone is going to be different than if you're writing about making waffles in the breakfast chapter for your nieces and nephews and what a happy time it is, you know, and those can both be written in your same voice. And I also think that your voice, you know, does, you know, we could talk about if your voice changes, certainly over the arc of their career, I, I do think a voice will Definitely. change and evolve. But do you use a different voice for different communications? And 
I'm not sure you do or should or can really, because your voice is really so authentically tied to your point of view. But it's such a skill. Like we've talked about this where some, if you're writing for a publication or if you're co-writing, you're trying to adapt somebody else's voice or a publication's Uh. voice. A publication has a brand and they'll have words that they don't use or a certain way of communicating that they won't do. But you might do that in your own writing. And so absolutely, when I'm writing an assignment for a publication, I, I don't actually always think of it as me writing my unique perspective. You bring some perspective, but I feel like I can be a chameleon sometimes. Yes. You have to be. Yeah. yeah. You ha- you have to be as, as a freelancer. And I think of tone as part of voice. So I think of tone in terms of, say, the volume of your voice. Are you using words to speak loudly? Are you using words to speak quietly? How do you moderate that? You know, tone can be the choice between me saying, oh, that's a bunch of crap versus that's a bunch of rubbish. (laughs) And those are two different (laughs) tones, right? (laughs) Has developing your voice been a conscious effort? I think it's that whole, you have to put in the time. You have an innate voice within you, but you need to put the time in and and writing to really tease it out. And I think it's something that we've probably talked about before in the podcast is that Ira Glass, he has this great presentation where he talks about, you know, you have this great taste, but your skill level might not be able to match up to that taste. And when you're starting out, I remember being in my early 20s and reading Calvin Trillin, and I said, that's what I want to sound like. But I wasn't Calvin Trillin. I can't sound like Calvin Trillin. I can't be that witty and simple and spot on with my my first drafts, especially when I'm just starting out and I haven't put in the hours and I haven't put in that time spent on the keyboard with a notepad just trying to get words down that you have an idea what they're supposed to sound like. And then you get it on the page and you said... But the order is all wrong, and I'm not sure how to get that order. And I think the more time you spend writing, your natural voice will evolve and take you know the next step. But I think early on, everyone's trying to sound like what they think they're supposed to sound like. And I, I know I did that early on. I said, okay, well, this is what a cookbook author voice is supposed to sound like. And early on, I, I did have this, this one real hard-nosed newspaper editor come to me at a book signing and say, you know, you know that book's Drunk and White? You should consider reading it every year, maybe twice a year. And I said, oh my goodness, okay. Uh, Clearly something was missing in my early writing. So I'll leave it at that. (laughs) And I would say putting in the work writing, the work, and I'm just going to keep banging this drum, the work editing and revising, because it's, you get the sentence down and look at it again and ask yourself, does that feel true to what I'm trying to say and doing it over and over until you get to a place where you feel like that's how you want to say it. Yeah. And then there's this whole thing of, being edited. And when you're freelancing, there are style sheets you got to follow, right? So I remember my first editing session with the New York Times, and I was told that, well, at the New York Times, we do not identify people as simply like Jane Doe, comma, maker of the spurtle. It is (laughs) Jane Doe, the maker of the spurtle, because there's always like the is placed in front of the attribute. And so it was stuff like that where all of a sudden there's a certain tone, a formality, and your voice has changed a little bit, right? But I mean, like what you were saying, Kristen, I mean, essentially like what what you have to say is there, but it's just slightly tweaked for the venue in which you're speaking. Mm-hmm. So the outlet. And so 
it's sometimes there, it seems like there's a certain Harry Potter quality about all of this, where it just magically <laughs> appears and there are wizards and sorcery involved, but it takes time and you're building all of that. So after all these years of writing, and I have to tell you that I um, barely passed my AP English test when I was in high school and I was, <laughs> English is not my native language and I'm always working. Andrea, that was an AP class. So you already- I know, but level. I did, I got to tell you, I did much better in Spanish. (laughs) But the thing is that it's like over time, you can put all of these skills together and build on them. And I feel like after all these years of writing, I'm still working on it on my voice. Oh, I do too. Absolutely. Of course. That's what's so I think important and, and where the Harry Potter magic happens is being deliberate about it. I clearly remember when I had my first solo book that wasn't a work for hire, it wasn't a collaborative project. And I sat down, I'm like, well, I've been writing for a while. I know how to do this. And I was just struck silent because I didn't know what my voice was. And it was a very slow building process to try to try to figure out of all the pieces, you know, all the writing I've done, the freelance, the work for hire, where in those various projects did I really feel most like myself, sound most like myself, and just trying over, you know, sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase, trying to find a place that felt true to what I was trying to communicate. It was hard <laughs> and it remains hard. Yeah. Some people will say, write like you talk. Hmm. And I know what they mean. For example, ending a sentence with a preposition is a no-no technically in writing, but sometimes it creates these awkward sentences that people would never say anymore. So I feel like in that example, writing like you speak makes sense. But if we were to print out this transcript (laughs) and just put it up. Oh boy, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it's very hard to read. The way most people talk, it's very hard to read. I know for me, I'm constantly interrupting myself. So yeah, I guess, like, what do you think about that advice, writing like you speak? Have you guys ever read a book where it felt like it was dictated? It's kind of weird. Yeah. It's a very disjointed... I'm trying to think of a writer who, when you read it, it feels like they're right there speaking to you. I think that's the hardest writing to capture. I mean, that's really Mm -hmm. hard to do, you know, to have that immediacy, that sense of fluency. But to actually, if I were to write like I spoke, no. (laughs) It's it's kind of a put off, you know, but then like I've been reading Johnny Apple's work. There's an old collection of his works that were put together after he passed away. And it's like, he's right there. And I've only like, been close to him physically once at, at a food conference. And I was like, awestruck by the glow of Johnny Apple. And for those of you who don't know who he is, he was a reporter for the New York Times, but wrote prolifically about food in the most beautiful ways. Anyway, he, but his writing, it makes you feel like he's standing about just inches away from you whispering in your ear. Mm-hmm. You know that that's not dictated. That's a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Him and you, whoever you may be, and he's like so close up and, and his parentheticals are like little whispers in your ear. Mm. It's beautiful, beautiful writing. And a lot of people, you know, back in the day were like, I'm going to write like Johnny Apple. But there's only one Johnny Apple with only one kind of budget that he had, which was enormous, apparently. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't really think that one should should write the way one speaks, because sometimes I use a lot of foul language myself. <laughs> You all know that. (laughs) We would be beeped forever. (laughs) 
<laughs> but say more about that dictation thing, Andrew, because I'm not sure I fully understand. Yeah. So my, my sense of Johnny Apple's writing is that it, to me, his work is so carefully crafted and those sentences are carefully edited and revised and so that you have this sense of him standing right there. But it's a very, you know, back to your strategic communication, you know, it, it's a very well-crafted piece of writing. My understanding when you say dictation, it sounds like someone's just read it into a voice memo and not edited it at all. Yeah, it's a little rough, but I don't know if that has appeal to people or not, you know, and it's or barely edited because I look, I've dictated things into voice memo because I was running out of time, you know, and I'm just like, oh, you know, that's, that'll work out for, for this. But then I always go back and I kind of edit it. But then what, even when I edit, I'm like, that sounds just like kind of dopey. And, and sometimes I read things and it's not like, what I would consider great writing, but it's been published somewhere online or or um, maybe in an article or something where I just go, you know, I, I feel like that person dictated those words mm. and it puts me off, but it may appeal to other people. Mm hmm. Or even if you go back to early sort of wire stories in newspapers before uh, you had email, you'd have, you know, somebody on the ground in um, oh. Beirut and they would dictate their story into the phone to the, you know, the desk in New York or Chicago or wherever. And, you know, that editor would then be typing it up and then they would smooth out. But that was all I think some our writers can learn to be good dictators. Um, well, not not of the kind that take over countries, but of the kind that can craft <laughs> dictators. Sounds horrible. I mean, if somebody did a poll quote out of this episode, it's like, oh yeah, Kate says dictators are good for the world. Um, anyway, so I think there's a way that some people can train their brain to be able to hear what they want to be put on the page. But these are usually small pieces. They're short. They might be something that could be a, a short online article these days. But I agree, Andrea, there's something that changes when you spend time on the page. And I think that comes with that red pen and you're going to get out and you're going to, you're going to move things around and your thoughts are going to change because you're interacting with your ideas in a different way, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're right, Kate, because if there are authors out there who dictate really well, I want to learn from what you do. I want to hear about that because I think that yeah. that's a very interesting skill. Dictation has come a long ways from even just five years ago. Um, AI has come a long ways too. So, you know, we can use these technologies because honestly, people are being pushed to pump out more content faster nowadays than ever. Right. I mean, if yeah. there's a tool that allows you to transcribe, I just keep using voice memo as a sort of generic term for it, but a, a, a way you've got an idea, you're on deadline, you need to create something. If there's a way for you to dictate it and you happen to have that facility and then it will transcribe it and put lines on a page for you that then you can go back and edit as you say, Andrew, I'd like to learn from people who are good at that. Yeah. I mean, Jenna Kutcher, we had her on as a bonus episode. She said she feels like she's a better speaker than writer. And when she had writer's block, she would start writing with a voice memo and then I think take it to the page. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. She is somebody who does speak like she writes and writes like she speaks. And some people just can speak in quotes. It's true. Hey, and Jenna's book was a bestseller. So yeah. 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 And there, you know, part of her voice, back to the topic at hand, her voice is about this highly conversational personality that you feel that you're getting to know, that you're getting to know mm -hmm. a chatty person who can speak in quotes. Just taking that idea of audio a step further and looking at it in a different way, 
I think everyone benefits from reading their work out loud. And mm-hmm. I've heard this from uh, writers who work specifically for, say, an audible original. If they're writing a book specifically to go to audio, they will find themselves cutting out unnecessary words that they never noticed when they were writing it for print. But as soon as they are starting to say their book out loud, oh my God, why did I have those words, those extra words? So there is something to be said, especially when you're looking at that headnote space and it's not very long. Read your headnote out loud and listen to yourself and think, is this the right approach for this headnote? Maybe there's a way I can trim some words or move things around that'll make it sound a little bit more lively. The reason you have that headnote is you want people to make that recipe. Like, do you have that hook in there? And see if it also matches kind of your own personality. That's such great advice, Kate, because one of the things, you know, defining voice, I think of it's the rhythm and the pacing yeah. of the way you write. And even if you're reading not out loud, you're just reading, you are still internalizing that language with rhythm and pace. And the sentence is one of the first things. And we talk about studying food writing, study any writing. One of the things is altering your sentence length. So there's different kinds of rhythms and pace going there. Also things like assonance. So, you know, are there a lot of, you know, the silver, slippery, whatever sonnet? And, And they're using that deliberately, or is it sound gross because you've just described the soup as, you know, with too many slippery, slimy, slippery. So reading your stuff aloud is so important because your reader reading it for the first time is hearing it in their own head and in and, yeah. and creating images to go with this, the sound and the rhythms of your voice. Yeah. I've, I've read my books aloud in manuscript form. I always do it at least once. And I don't know. It's a lot of like, after a while, I'm like, oh my God, that's so much me. I can't stand listening to myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it helps, y'all. It really does. In a cookbook, there are the head notes. There's maybe some front material. That's where our voices can really shine. But what about the recipes? Shiver me timbers, you guys. You know, in a bowl, stir together. (laughs) I totally do that because I worked at a magazine and that was the style. And I'm only now starting to experiment with getting away from that Yeah, I think it depends on different authors do it differently. And I think some of our favorite authors do it. For me, I love having the voice carry through the recipe procedure and the method. I love nothing more than just, I mean, I was just reading a Richard Olney simple French food and he just talks about like, it's in the, it's in the method. And he's like, the garlic Mm -hmm. will appreciate the cream. And, you know, it's, it's very lyrical and imaginative. And I personally love that as a cookbook author. And if you've got 175, 150, how many recipes are in that book? You know, there's a certain economy to focus your voice development on headnotes and sidebars and what are called the more prose text part of the book. But it's something lovely about discovering these little creative nuggets buried within the methodology. But you'll always be stopped by a copy editor if you like do things that are a little bit too out there. So in that line from Olney, he may have started pretty standardized with, you know, in a medium skillet over medium heat or set a skillet over medium heat because, you know, we can't use heat twice or we don't want to, but some people do. <laughs> oh, the yeah, that's, I always think about that. I said, oh, this word has been used twice in this sentence. Right. So now I you know, set the, you know, cooking implement over <laughs> said heat, melt the butter. But then, you know, I think beyond that kind of standardized beginning of the method, or a set of instruction sends, then you can 
play with the cues. And I think that that's where you can be creative. And I would love to be more lyrical. I just run out of space. Mm-hmm. You're pretty lyrical, though. In your your method, you always have your own way of saying it that's not the boilerplate method, whether that's talking about how big the ginger should be or what you want it to sound like or look like in the pan. I mean, I think you've always been intentional about that. Is, is that correct? Or? It is. I am intentional because I, so much of what I convey, I feel, is foreign to my reader ideas, cooking methods or whatnot, and they're like unfamiliar. So then I'm like, so how do I make it familiar and friendly so that the cook, the reader will understand what I'm observing? Because, you know, I I read um, recipes and books from all different kinds of cuisines, but vis-a-vis Asian or Vietnamese cuisine, some of the stuff that we do is just like not part of like regular, average, conventional cooking. And so like, how do you convey that in a way that people will will see that it's personally relevant to them? And so I, I, I spent a lot of time just like staring at the stove or my cutting board, <laughs> trying to figure out a way to make it accessible, but not dumbed down. I actually, I got to tell you, I edit a lot in my head. I will mm-hmm. edit sometimes for days before I write something down. Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes I'll write something down if it's really simple and I think, okay, well, you know, just going to write that little word down. But otherwise I hold it in my head and I just, I, I simmer on it. Speaking of simmering, I have um, a Nigella Lawson cookbook and I was just scanning a recipe. There's a line that says, so to the robustly simmering pan, add the salmon. Vigorous would be or rapidly boiling would be a more commonplace term robustly is one you don't see and and it it grabs your attention. It's interesting now, I feel like there, I don't know if you guys would agree, but there seems to be a push against wordy recipes. You know, not just the stuff on the the blog saying just get to the recipe, but just these abbreviated directions and recipes. You know, I think about this a lot because my recipes tend to be very wordy. I I bring my teaching voice, teaching experience to the way I write. And so I I, I listen to that criticism and I th- I think about it and I think about, you know, what words could I take out? You know, so the trick is to make it succinct but still helpful. But it always then brings me to this, you know, if voice is like your personality, you can't expect everyone to like you. <laughs> Right. Yes. Nor should right. you try to have everyone like you. So yeah, you can't. Don't create a voice that's going to please everyone or you will... Please no one. Please no one. Yeah. <laughs> right? So you, right? Yeah. That's a common marketing thing. If you're doing this for everyone, it's for no one, you know. It's service language. You're trying to teach someone, show someone, you know, show, not tell, show someone how to do something. And especially in the, well, in the head note, but also in the method, you know, how can you, like, if you say brown the tofu, you know, heat the oil in the pan, brown the tofu, what do you, is it going to be speckled? Is it going to be, you know, darkened on the edges? Is this going to be, or, you know, are you toasting something till fragrant? Fragrant like what? What's it going to actually smell like? You know, those are the things that if you could sort of pursue and and push yourself to find a more evocative word. And, you know, sometimes you fail and sometimes you, you discover a new one or a robustly simmering. Sometimes it's playful. Or I would say Nigella's voice is playful. But don't you think also as Americans, we have certain expectations in our recipe and cookbook uh, writing that is different from what is published in Europe or Australia and elsewhere, where it's, yes. it's there's a lot more flexibility and you know people forgive things a little bit more. 
I think with the the books that we all write, we have to assume that we need to give as much information as we can fit on the page because we can't assume people understand what certain cooking um, steps should look like along the process. And I think in in cookbooks written in other parts of the country. And I, I speak from my experience working on a cookbook called La Bouvette with Camille Formont, who is French, and I would write the recipe in my American speak. And she'd look at me thinking, do we really have to dumb it down to our audience? Shouldn't they know what the butter should look like at this stage? And I thought, well, no. I mean, how many people wrap cabbage in call fat? Like, not that many. They need to know everything. <laughs> What's call so, fat? No, I mean, I don't quite know. But what I did do is I pulled back on certain things that didn't need that over explanation. So if it was a very simple salad, let's just let those ingredients breathe on the page, have a beautiful photo. People can interpret it however they feel they need to. And so we reached that compromise. But I think that was the first time as a co-author writing for somebody else and somebody else's voice that I was really challenged to think about the voice in the method. Usually when I'm writing as a, a co-author, writing for somebody else, writing in their voice, the, the head notes and the storytelling is where that voice comes in. And then by the time you get to the method, you just go into what you think is expected from the publisher and you go off of their style sheet. This was the first book I think I, I, I kind of had to think of, wait a second, she has a very distinct idea of what she thinks a recipe should sound like. So we did change some things there. And Kristen, I don't know, I know you've done a lot of collaborations. How does that work with you when you're working with an author? Do they get into the nitty gritty with you on the method or are they just relieved that the method is written in a professional way and they can move on to the next recipe? Before I answer that, I just, I think it's funny that this is like the same exact tension that Julia Child had with Simone Beck with Simka. Oh, so, you know, very much right. like... Simcoe was always like, do we need to explain this? You know, and <laughs> right. And that's the like, five, yes. five yes, page recipe for making baguettes. And yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think I've said this on this podcast before, but a chef I worked with, he, there were certain words he just hated. So like drizzle. Right. But a lot of chef recipes, they're so spare and they do assume a lot of knowledge. So I, I find that I'm often filling in. And then if they are paying attention, then yes, they go back through and they're like, no drizzle or sprinkle. No drizzle. Sprinkle. <laughs> no sprinkling of those Scatter, breadcrumbs. Range, you know. <laughs> What's left then of the action verb you're supposed to use in that part of the assembly process that comes towards the end when you are supposed to activate this the tweezer the reader no. <laughs> to like finish, cross the finish line. Fling. Activate the food stylist. Turning Ooh. nouns into verbs is a voice thing. Some authors do it and they just do it. It adds a element of, I don't know, looseness to their prose. And then others are, you know, no, that's a noun and can never be a verb. And, you know, that's a choice you make. And, and if you get it by your copy editor, too, that's the other thing. Yeah. You know, in, in I forget what episode we talked about style sheets, which is something that you often get if you're publishing a book or if you're working with a magazine. And that style sheet will have a lot of influence on the voice in terms of your adherence to it or how you know, comprehensive it is. And I've said this before on this podcast that I've gone so far as to write my own style sheets 
and argue for them in certain places. And, you know, it's a compromise depending on who you're working with and what your publisher is. But it, it, it certainly, you know, your style of writing is, we talked about tone versus voice, and there's also style, which is mm-hmm. another aspect of it. Yeah, you know, and sometimes you mix into that, you know, add this other extra layer of in- ingredient to lend complexity to voice is like this notion of some authors have a political or socioeconomic statement that they want to make in their work. So that informs the voice, the tone on the page too. And so, you know, I I feel like even though we grapple with finding and crafting a distinctive voice in what we do on the page, there are so many factors that that come into play that help us shape that. And it can can be a very organic thing that develops over time. I don't think there's anything concrete about this, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Also, we're in a moment where people want more of a person or a personality, whether that's on social media or um, maybe in a book. Maybe before people did feel like they had to like cover a part of themselves up to fit in with a certain expectation or like something commercial. Yeah, I think right now people want more of those like unique stories. Yeah. And human vulnerability. You know, I think that there's so much yes. of that in food and cooking, the the fear of performance you know, performance anxiety, the fear of not attaining perfection. Um, and, and it actually all leads back to what uh, Lori Coleman wrote a lot about um, <laughs> in her books and her essays. Because she's just like, it's a mess, you know, I can't get this done. But there is like this beauty that's attained at the end. And you just have to accept yourself and love yourself for that. Yeah. So if we're talking to some people who are just getting started writing, or they've been writing, but they are interested in developing their voice a little further. Are there any exercises you've done over the years that have helped? I'll say one thing. Um, I don't think early on when I was writing about food, I thought about voice enough. It was so much work just to get the head notes and the yields and the ingredient lists and the method and everything in the right order that for me, voice was a distant third thing that I was worried about. But I realize now just how incredibly important it is to recognize your voice and to hone it. And so one of the things I did last year was I took an online fiction writing class. I did a creative writing class and I was given writing prompts. And one of them was, you know, somebody finds a body and then they're stopped by somebody like, I can't believe, like, why are you covering up that body with leaves? And you had to come up with this little premise, 500 words, maybe less about what happened. And I didn't know I had these words in me and they just kind of came out on the page. And I said, oh, my God, what is this is a part of my brain I haven't accessed in a really long time. And I say that because I thought, wow, I think I was getting stuck into writing about some complicated methods or some complicated wines in in my own writing. And it was really pigeonholing me and I couldn't get out of that. But by doing this writing exercise, I was unleashing a part of my brain that hadn't been exercised to the fullest. And then going back to the nonfiction side, things just were more fun and lively. And I thought, why haven't I been doing more of these kinds of exercises? So I'd say one of the things that I find, and I'd love to know if this is true for you three, is that I don't like wasted words. I don't like writing things that aren't published or don't end up in a draft or something. It feels like I don't have that much time. So why am I wasting time generating words that will never be published? I would say that actually writing exercises are worth 
those secret words that never get published because they will make your published work. And if you haven't been published, it'll make your eventual published work much better. So I think finding, even if it's not specific to food writing, finding just a writing prompt. It could be a barrel of apples fell over in the supermarket and then you just fill in the story mm -hmm. and spend 20 minutes. That's it. Yeah. And see where that gets you. So that's one thing I would suggest, but I'd love to hear what you all do. I love that, Kate. And I, I love that you brought up fiction or non-food writing, because I think we talk a lot about food writing and we focus on food writing, but all writing is, you know, food writing is writing first. And so I think focusing um, on things that are not about food is super uh, helpful. The other thing I would say is if you love cookbooks, which I assume you do, if you're <laughs> listening or any book, but, I, but I'm going to go with cookbooks, pull out a few that you like and read them for voice and read them and say, what is the voice? Why do I like this book? And is it because of the voice? Maybe it's just the recipes and maybe the voice drives you nuts because I have a few of those too, where I, the voice is not my favorite thing about it. But see if you can identify the voice because we started off this episode by saying voice is one of the things that editors and agents are looking for. So my guess is this successful book is going to have a strong voice. And if you can start to identify it, then you can start to maybe identify it in your own writing and start to hone those parts and amplify those parts. Yeah. You know, I totally agree with, with both of what you, what, what you said, Kate and Molly and read, Yeah, read more than just food stuff, read just whatever. I read a lot of fiction and biographies that may have food in it. And when I see how a skilled writer such as Colson Whitehead, for example, sneak a little bit of food <laughs> into his fiction. I'm like, oh man, that is a gem. And what can I pull from that? Food books have certain rhythms and cadences, but we can learn from so many other different kinds of writers. And you can practice writing with prompts like what Kate mentioned, but also, you know, if you have a blog or even social media, that is an opportunity to practice writing and write every day. Um, one of the things that my husband recently said about me, and he's known me for a long time and observed my career firsthand, up close <laughs> and personal, and he goes, you know what? You write every day. You write something every day. And that has really improved your writing. And he even says to me, well, you asked me to proofread your work the other day. And, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I was so scared that I would have to like so concerned and have to take a lot of time kind of like tweaking this and that. But there were no tweaks needed. You've really Aww. improved your writing. And Aww. I was like, aw, after decades of knowing me, I've like, you know, <laughs> some level of, of, you know, achievable, you know, status within his brain. So, <laughs> and it wasn't damning me with faint praise either. Yeah. Aww. Something that I've seen writing teachers recommend is writing in another writer's voice. So you're going to write this head note for your own recipe, but do it in Richard Olney's voice. And then in Nigella Lawson's voice and see what you learn. Those are not for publication, to Kate's point. Like, I wouldn't ever purposefully publish something that was like was a writing exercise where I was doing it somebody's voice. But you might pull nuggets from that. And I do this sometimes with copywriting clients when they're trying to like figure out their voice. We'll look at complementary brands. Like, what do those brands sound like? Because brands often have very distinctive voices if they have strong copy so I've started looking a lot more at brands and their voices and how they describe their products. It opens a whole other part of your brain and you start thinking about words very differently. And as you read whatever it is, you're not just looking at what 
they're saying, but how they're saying it. That's what your oh, voice yeah. is. And that's what you're looking for. Because I find sometimes I start reading on autopilot, you know, especially with the news or things like that. And and when I'm trying to read to become a better writer, I'm like, how did they get that information to me? And why did it affect me so much? Um, and I often, I have notebooks that I write down certain turns of phrase or sentences that just stop me in my tracks. And I copy mm-hmm. them out word for word and then just sort of collect those. And I don't know why I do it. Maybe it's part of the, the act of writing them makes me remember them more. That's a great idea. I will also give a little plug for Diane Jacobs' book, Will Write for Food. She devotes the early part of the book to voice and tone. There are more exercises and prompts. And she talks to some writers about their view on voice. So I, I read it before this episode. I recommend it. Yeah. And she's on episode 15. If anybody wants to go back and listen to, it was a great interview with her where she really talks about that whole process of putting together that book. This discussion has been so meaty and I feel like we've hopefully added so much value for our listeners. I'm excited to dig into this more over the next several months as we talk to other authors and ask them about how they've developed their own voices. Likewise. So great spending time with you guys as always. And I can't wait to do it again. Catch you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. You can find us on Instagram at Everything Cookbooks and join the email list on our website, everythingcookbooks.com. Sincere thanks to our editor, Abby Circatella. If you have a minute, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again for joining and we'll catch you next time. For now, keep on cooking, writing, and reading. Reading.